first off, did, is there any other opiate questions you think would be of value that I could ask for my, for the demographic who will listen to this show? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say the message one more time. Just just please just please don't die. Your your parents are or maybe just don't take the pills because you know that's gonna pills, fuck you. And up. then you don't die, and then your parents still love you, and everybody's happy. So what if posters you start handing out bongs? Tylenol, it's Tylenol, it's. Can you put a Tylenol sticker on the bong? That'd be fine. Could you hit up Tylenol and just tell them I'll put it right here? This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, and this is my golden hour. Which is presumably supposed to sync the audio in the video. Okay. Because we've been experiencing something called audio drift. I hate when that happens. Are you familiar with it? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, well, nor was I. <laughs> Nonetheless, for everyone who doesn't know, this quite clearly is not the traditional guest we'd have up here, but I am very happy to ha finally have not only a, res a successful professional, we've had a couple, but a very successful professional. But also a great dude up here, man. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. So this is Dr. Scott Sigmund. If anybody's been following me on Instagram or Snapchat um, leading up to this week, I've been documenting that you've been coming up. And awesome. so and so some kid hit me up. He was like, I was like, yeah, yeah Dr. Scott Sigmund coming up. He's a, uh, he doesn't prescribe opiates to his patients. He's like cutting edge for that. And some kid hit me up. His name's Zach Coxel. Okay. And he was like, he's a do actually doing my surgery, too. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Oh, this guy's flooding the market, man. Look oh, at that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, Dr. Sigmund was my surgeon for my surgery. So if you rewind back to, when was that, Jack? Like the first episodes we were running? Yeah. So I'm in a brace for like the earliest episodes of this. Sure. That's awesome. You can uh, see the whole thing. Uh, it was great. I think. And then you screwed it up in the gym, I guess? Yep. Terrible. <laughs> went, went lifting instantly. Then I went uh, back. How long is the normal recovery period for a labrum? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, competitive athletes at potentially three months if they really walk through the real rehab process the way we normally do it. But I think that any time you have major surgery, especially if you're an athlete, mm -hmm. you're probably talking a full year before you make a maximum recovery. So it's about, you know, good surgeon, good patient, good rehab, good result is typically what we it, say. And is that a frequent injury, a labrum? Oh, yeah really super common in your guys age group that's what happens it it can be pain but a lot of times it's shoulder dislocation that's where most people get it their po shoulder pops out and then mm -hmm. it keeps coming out and then they literally you know they struggle apprehensive and then you take them in you do surgery and you fix it and put it back together well so what did you do to my surgery if you i mean i know you also here's another note this guy dr sigmund runs his firm like a business <laughs> it is insane jack he uh, you show up there's like 10 different secretaries who are all facilitating like most of the administrative work and dr sigmund has like an earpiece in like this little mouth <laughs> no, 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 he's no, like no, he's no, like no, patient no. xyz no. has this going on with him we're gonna get him in there real quick in and out yeah. great awesome. <laughs> That's awesome well i appreciate that you know i always say your time is as valuable as mine so we really try to be efficient and make sure you're 
you're in a timely fashion. You're a capitalist, man. Uh, you're cap- <laughs> well, yeah, they were all capitalists. That's okay, but I'm healing. I'm a healer. Yeah. Well, so that that I think that's something that interesting that people can get out of this is like, I mean, y- your service and your product is top notch, right? It's best in New England. Best as good as it gets. Hopefully, as best in the country and the world. So, yeah. how did you figure out? Okay. Because traditionally, you don't really see, at least in my knowledge, you don't see doctors starting up their own businesses that branch off from their practice. Is that is that normal? No, I think that's probably true. Most doctors are really not entrepreneurial. They're really mm-hmm. focused on their skill set, which they know, and they learn it, and it takes a long time to get it, and they want to stay focused. They want to be an expert at the stuff that they do, right? I mean, if you're going to operate on somebody, you've got to know your shit. You yeah, know, you got to be on your game, man. Yeah, man, you don't want to screw it up. So you basically focus, focus, focus. And but there are some early, in, uh, you know, early adopters, innovative thinking docs around the country that are really recognizing, you know, technology and mm-hmm. what's happening, and they're really trying to incorporate that into their practices. Uh, and yeah, now I'm sort of basically running three businesses at this point in my clinical practice. Give me your plug, man. Do a little marketing uh, for the business. Sure. <laughs> First of all, I got to tell everybody who I am. I am uh, Doctor Scott Sigmund, the original opioid sparing surgeon. Whoa. Healer of knees and shoulders left and right And I do pride myself on my social media space as well I was so, saying, I was like, you're pretty active, huh? Dude, Good for dude, you Dude, 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 hashtag follow the fro That's oh. what I'm known for <laughs> The hair, let that hair roll the smart guy, and, man uh, And yeah, so I'm on Instagram I'm on Facebook for the old people Instagram for the kids And then LinkedIn for business so You I must be a one-of-one one with that, right? With doctors? Yeah, it's it's not, it's not usual But you'd be surprised I mean, because we got some younger people now Coming in through medicine Who are, are part of this, you know, culture and society So they're mm-hmm. all over it now We're seeing a lot of really smart docs putting up videos on LinkedIn or on mm-hmm. Facebook showing their technique and the shit they do. And like, it's really kind of cool. I mean, we do a lot ourselves. I mean, I'm not the pimple popper with the gross stuff, but it's just disgusting. Yeah. But the, she's, she's like famous. Yeah. Because there's like huge welts on people's back. She grabs like a sword and stabs <laughs> it in their back. <laughs> no, but she's like, yeah. literally all, she's like on, on uh, Ellen and all these other oh, crazy yeah. shows now. And I'm like, what we do, is we got to get you to that level on social yeah, media. Well, it's coming. It's all good. <laughs> we'll take our time, but it's fun. Uh, you know, what we do is what we try to show, is that you know there's there's fun too you know I, I I believe that what we do is incredibly serious in the operating room but man I play music and I'm I'm laid back mm-hmm. and I wanna I wanna do what I do and be focused on what I'm doing in a relaxed environment so and enjoy it and enjoy it so what we do and and the kids love it I mean especially the ones I'm operating on they're like yeah man shoot a video on my shoulder I can't wait for all my buds to see and it's it's not gross there's not a lot of blood yeah. or anything it's just like hey like for you like what do we do for your shoulder. So, so Connor, you have this. You're okay if I talk about. This. Please, yeah, I don't mind at all. See, you're at a tear of your labrum in the back of the shoulder, which is really unusual. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's up in the front. So we put this camera inside your shoulder, which is up on a big TV screen, and then I sort of manipulate all of these little instruments. It's like a video game, basically. Yeah. You know, you pop the thing in over here. You're looking at it from over in here. You pass a suture up and out. You tie it all down, and there you go. And so then the bo- the process is hopefully that the body heals itself mm-hmm. over time. So. so you don't ever get grossed out? No. I mean, well, look, I'm focused now. I'm like, you know, I don't do pus. I don't I don't really do broken bones. I know, but I've seen some of your your videos and, like, the total zoom in on some of the cartilage and the tissue. I'm like, that's just unappetizing, yeah, man. It's awesome. I love <laughs> that shit. You're sick. <laughs> well, no, I'm not sick. I'm an expert. That's what I do. Uh, yeah. so, so have you always had an inclination to medicine and yeah I was uh, it goes all the way back to 10th grade for me I get uh, I've been asked that question before like how the hell did you decide you wanted to go through this craziness of becoming a doctor right it's not easy it's not any doctor the doctor yeah dude four years of college 
four years of medical school, five years of residency. But what was it? What was the tenth grade epiphany? So I'm in uh, I'm in a high school, public high school down in Baltimore. I'm playing football and lacrosse, and uh, I'm good at all the sports stuff. And my father was a chemical engineer from MIT, so I was graced with some 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 brainiac. Nice. And I was like, you know, I love the math, I love the science, but I love the sports, and sort of how can I combine those things? Mm-hmm. So there were these three kids in uh, in high school with me whose fathers were orthopedic surgeons. And I'm like, wow, they look, they're doing okay. They they, mm-hmm. they seem to be like getting around. They go on vacation, you know. They got they're making hot some wife, yeah, all that good <laughs> stuff. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to see what I can do. And basically, it really, it was that moment. It was a pivotal moment. And there was one guy in particular. His name was Dr. Larry Becker. He's a iconic sports medicine orthopedic surgeon from Baltimore. He played Hopkins uh, lacrosse, and he became the guy in Baltimore for sports medicine. And his daughter went to high school with me as well as his son. And I played lacrosse with his son, and so I was like, man. This is what I want to do. So it was your idol. So yeah, it was a guy, and, and so that's always interesting to me because like there's certain professions that aren't the most glamorous. I mean, you're you have a highly coveted profession, especially it's like a really specialized trade. But it's interesting to hear that like you have certain people that you aspire to be in your given field. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. I mean, uh, Dr. Becker passed away. I think about. Three years ago, four years ago, and I sent a nice note to both of his kids. I was like, I want you to know I've got the torch, you know, mm-hmm. the stuff that your dad was doing, you. you know, we're doing now, too. And it's really cool to sort of pass it down and, and you know, help next generation. Mm-hmm. So was, was he also non-opioids? Non-opo- no. Nah, so that was, you know, that whole opioid thing is really fucked up. Man. I, I got to tell you, it's it's I, terrible. I, it, I get asked all the time, like, how, how, how do we get here? Right. Well, why is this happening? Why is it that an 18 year old kid that goes to B.C. High that gets a scholarship to go play hockey at Providence, tears his ACL, and then six months later is literally dead from a bad fentanyl dose. I mean, how does that happen? So, so yeah, before we get into this, um, Dr. Sigmund is, I don't want to say notorious, but he's famous in his field because he is very aggressively against prescribing opioids or at the most minimal dose, correct? Absolutely. And opioids is like Oxycontin, Vicodin. Percocet. Perks, Perk 30s, that's what the rapper's been taking. All that shit you guys get at the parties and the fun times. and What parties are you going to, man? Come on, dude. Come on. Did you ever see a Perk at college? Yeah, never. But Xanax is very popular. Yeah. So So that's a different field, right? Yeah, that's a different uh, class of medication. But did I describe it the right way? Yeah, no, that's my gig. And so, so, you know, I've been doing this for like... Oh, sorry. Do you mind just just going to the other door? Thank you. Jack, Um, don't lock that. uh, 25... (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I graduated uh, and started practice in like 1996. So what were we told in 96? Well, uh, the shit you do hurts, right? We're taking drills and we're taking saws and we're fixing broken bones and like, and you have an obligation to keep your patients out of pain. And they said to us quite clearly, you're going to use these opioids because they're inexpensive and they're not addictive. That shit this is what this, any further from the truth. This is what they told you in medical school. In medical school, and, and I can ask, where does it come, you know, we're bad, are we doc, are, are we bad as doctors because we allowed this to happen? Were we taking money from pharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies to make this happen? And it really wasn't that. The culture around pain in the early 90s was, was about the process of making sure your patients were out of pain. Now, 
Did Big Pharma influence that culture? Sure. I think you could make a strong argument. Elaborate on what Big Pharma is. So uh, those are just the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world that are, you know, billion-dollar companies. So they say Martin Shkreli, Big Pharma. Big Pharma, yeah. There's there's a demonic tone to it. People hate it. Right, they hate it. And so... So were they influencing? Yeah, there were actual commercials from Big Pharma that manufactured this shit to say, hey, it's not addictive. Opioids specifically. Opioids specifically are not addictive. So fucked, man. Totally. And so we were then told, so then they changed the culture even at the governmental level. So then there's this group called JCO, and these JCO comes in, they're the ones that make sure that your hospitals are doing all the right shit and not screwing up on patients and things. And so they came in and they said, oh, we got to change the way in which we do things. Mm-hmm. And then some dude decided, okay, pain's going to be a vital sign. So what's a vital sign for the listeners out there? It's your pulse, right? You can check it. It's 100. You're breathing 20 times mm-hmm. a minute. Your blood pressure is 120 over 80. Measurable things. The most immeasurable thing is the, the human body's response to pain. Yeah, I know. It's like you get when you show up to an ER, it's like, how are you feeling on a level of 1 to 10? Yeah. How, like, how do, you, how do you equate I, something like that? Yeah, so, so the average pa- the person that's already addicted to the medications is sitting there saying, I have, I'm 9 out of 10 pain, and they're sitting on their cell phone texting somebody. I call that the cell phone test. If you're on the fucking cell phone texting somebody, yeah. then you don't have significant You got to be pain. keeled over to say you're a nine, right? <laughs> you're totally like less than a three. So, whatever. So, but you're, you're a two. <laughs> you're a wimp, bro. So, I mean, that's the point. You, you, know, you get pissed it, when you see something like that? No, I don't get pissed. Like, anymore. you're a liar. You're a fake, man. No, actually, because it's not their fault. So, you know, that's the other thing we, get, we talk about all the time is about addiction. So, first of all, opioids are highly addictive. The, the most. The most addictive. So there's, there's a, a, a recent study that came out of the, the CDC, which is a big governmental uh, um, agency that worries about death and illness and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they basically stated that if you took a one-day prescription of opioids or, or more, one day or more, if you lo- grouped all those people together, 6% of them are still on opioids at one year. After one day of use. No, 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 that's not the point. So I want to be very careful about how I say this. It can be a one-day prescription or greater. Okay, so but they lump all of those prescriptions in. So there's two jumping points that are really critical when it comes to taking opioids. If you look at the data, Mm -hmm. seven days and 30 days, it's an exponential rise of opioid addiction. If you go beyond seven days, if you get through seven days and you're still on the medication, then you go to 30 days, then you're fucked. It's over. So is is that just because it, it rewires your brain chemistry like crazy? Like... So there is a certain percentage of patients that take the medication. The first time they take it, they get euphoric. It makes them feel awesome. Let's fucking do it. And then, no, dude. <laughs> I'm messing, I'm messing around. That's the point of being here, brother. You're supposed to be, so be with me here. Uh, anyway. j- just as a note, I'm, I, don't, I take no drugs and I don't drink. So I'm with you on the anti-drug. All right, perfect. So, um, so where was I? You got me off track now. So. You, were, you were saying after the seven-day period. Yes. So the point is you got to get off these medications absolutely as quickly as possible. And what's even better, try to be opioid naive because that's where I was going. So there's that one set of people that take it. They feel so good. And they're chasing that high. They're, and they're like any addict. And then they run out of the medication. They try and get it from someplace else. They steal it out of somebody's medicine cabinet. And then they find out that actually fentanyl's cheaper. They take fentanyl. It's laced with a bad drug or, or heroin. And then they're dead. They're literally dead. I thought fentanyl was the, the drug that most dealers, they break the heroin into. Yes, that's correct. And so from my knowledge, people take 
when they take oxy it's like fifty dollars a pill if you're buying off a street dealer then eventually you can get the same exact high from heroin for much, much cheaper. cheaper. And that's where the transition... So they are the same high. It's the same type of high that they're chasing for. That's correct. The problem... So that's probably about 5 to 6% of patients that take the medication. Wow. That is outstandingly high. Most people that take the medication say, I don't like the way this shit makes me feel. They say, Doc, I'm done. I'm going to take Tylenol and Motrin. I'm off of it. Shout out Tylenol. Tylenol. <laughs> exactly. Dr. Sigmund sponsored. Yeah, WebMD, Spawn, hashtag Spawn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we love it. Uh, anyway, so yeah, most people take it and they're like, ah, I'm done. You mm-hmm. know? And then there's a certain percentage of patients that take it and don't really get the euphoric high, but they do get sort of a pain relief and they're sort of quasi addicted but they actually can stay on the medication so i want to be very clear in this crowd it doesn't really matter as much that we're listening that are listening today but you know there's a lot of people that have chronic cancer and chronic pain syndromes and things that are on medication through a primary care doctor or a pain make mm-hmm. pain specialist sure. that manage them they're alive they have a job they you know so we're not advocating the elimination of opioids but what I strongly advocate is to try and minimize the exposure of opioids in the first place mm-hmm. so we can f- make sure that that 6% or whatever the number is never gets exposed so they never have to get to the heroin on the street. I, c- I couldn't agree more. N- not even to sound very grim, but my family is traditionally on both sides a highly addictive personality. And so I do too. Like I'm totally manic. Like you know, I move a lot, sh- shake a lot. So when I had initially got surgery, I was like... I want to make sure I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of your practice. I was like, I want to make sure I don't take any pills. How as a doctor, can you really assess someone's family history? You can't, right? Can a patient just say, Oh no, my family's fine. I'm perfectly mental health. Like, yeah. So you got to take their word for it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So until we have like a blood test or a saliva test, which can prove that that 6% person sitting in front of you, then we have to do exactly what you talk about. We talk about family history. We review the chart. But they can lie, right? Easily lie. So my philosophy is, for exa- for that exact reason, God, is they, I don't expose anybody to any of them if I can help it. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear. It's not like I'm like a, uh, you know, a sadist or something where I'm just like watching my patients sit there in pain for like weeks yeah. at a time. I mean, we have figured out ways to operate on patients so you don't have the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need the opioids. Well, what, what did you use? I mean, nerve block? Yeah, so we used a nerve block with a medication called Xperel. Hashtag Spawn. Hashtag uh, Tylenol. <laughs> and, uh, so it's called liposomal bupivacaine. Long story short, it's like when you go to the dentist, he gives you some numbing medicine in your mouth, and mm-hmm. your, your mouth is numb for like six hours, and then it hurts like shit for like a day, and then you're okay. Well, it used to be you go in and get your freaking wisdom teeth out, and the oral surgeons would give your, your kids 60 narcotic pills, 60 pills of Percocet. What, so why, why was that acceptable practice because they were told your patient needs to be out of pain so it was just passed down it was passed from down. the superior and then you're like okay well we're doing your we're doing your wisdom teeth on a thursday so you know i don't want you running out on saturday let's keep you drugged up through the weekend man yes and mm-hmm. so so what we do now is we take this anesthetic and there's a new one that lasts for up to three days it's mm-hmm. awesome you inject it right into the surgical site or for you we did a blocks so your whole arm goes numb but it lasts for three days. So I, I talk about, you know, the storm of pain lasting about three days. So when somebody comes in and takes a drill bit to your glenoid or your cup of your shoulder, yeah, it freaking cut, hurts. Cu- cutting right? apart the human skeleton. Yeah, right? man, yeah. it hurts. You're drilling holes in bone. But it, it hurts, but it, then it doesn't hurt as much in three days. Temporary, yeah, for right. sure. It's like if your dog, your dog gets operated on, lies in the, in the backyard for three days, gets up and walks around. We're the same. And so 
The bottom line is this gives a soft landing. It numbs up that area for three days. By the time it wears off, you're basically taking Tylenol or Motrin. And so it's just a Hashtag game Tylenol. changer. <laughs> <laughs> Not Motrin. Acetaminophen. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so when I had my nerve block, it's like what it feels like for everyone who's going to listen and watch this, it feels like if you slept on your arm for like five weeks straight and it's like you literally have to like pick your arm up with yep. the other hand. Yep, exactly. But – but you're totally right. Like, I never had Im- totally immense pain. Mind you, I did try the CBD oil, wildly ineffective. Yeah. Have, do you prescribe that? I don't, but people have asked, and I always say it's fine to go ahead and use it. I don't have a problem with it, but I'm not surprised. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So, are you, are you totally with the weed wave in mass right now? Yeah, so I get asked that question a lot, too. So, um, I'll start off with the NFL. You know, I get that question routinely. So these guys are beating the shit out of each other all week long. Yeah, right? it's a savage sport, it's man. It's a savage sport. And they're, I mean, and they're just killing each other. Wildly entertaining, though. Wildly. <laughs> go Pats, man. The goat, the whole Six, thing. six. Like JE11, love that man. Uh, so anyway, bottom line is, is that go smoke some weed, man. It's a painkiller. Mm-hmm. It helps. It is well documented within the medical literature that cannabis is a pain reliever. Mm-hmm. So it's legal in 13 states across the country now. Uh, I don't personally prescribe opioid, I'm sorry, cannabis mm-hmm. or, or legal marijuana in my medical practice because I don't have the expertise to be able to comment on it. But, but are you considering it? Uh, I'm not even considering it at this point, to be honest with you. I think mm-hmm. that uh, I have enough arrows in my quiver right now enough weapons that i'm using for pain management that i don't think i need to add another one at this time mm-hmm. uh, but, but it's probably just a logistical process for you to get licenses and yeah it's and you know something i got young kids too and mm-hmm. it's just like it's just not somewhere i want to go right now uh, but if somebody comes to me as a patient says i'm smoking marijuana is it okay if i use it for post-op pain management i don't have a problem with that yeah man get baked but i'm just not literally prescribing the medication mm-hmm. for them so, so you do consider medication weed yeah yeah, absolutely. So that that was initially when we had scheduled this. I was like, okay, opioids, wow, crazy shit, right? Yeah. Everyone at some point smokes weed. Yeah. Correct? Sure. How much of that, people say weed is a gateway drug, right? Yeah, there's no, there's no proof of that. There's, n- there's no statistical evidence I am not, that's true, right? I am not aware of any statistical evidence that says that, uh, that uh, marijuana is a gateway to opioids or other issues. So, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, well... If you smoke weed, it's going to be the first drug you try. You got to try weed first before you start dipping into then Coke and then all the other crazy shit. Yeah, I mean, no expertise. It's hard for me to you know, mm-hmm. really make an argument one way or the other. But I would just say, you know, moderation in life, you know, obviously the most important thing. Making good decisions for yourself. You know, if you're under the age of 18, you know, you got parents. I can tell you something. When it comes to this opioid shit, it really, really sucks when you die. Okay? It just does. It does for... Everyone around you, all the people that you leave behind, mm-hmm. these people are forever changed in their life and will never be the same. So make the right choice. Don't try the opioids. If you're going through surgical intervention, find an opioid-sparing surgeon that's going to minimize your exposure to these opioids and take you through your surgery you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a peaceful, healing manner. Uh, but yeah, just, just please don't die. Yeah, so I, I, I've been bouncing around a lot, but have you ever been to Melnia Cass and Massachusetts Avenue. No. So it's an intersection in the south end of Boston. It's referred to as Meth Mile. Mm. Have you ever heard of it? Or Zombieland? No. It's wildly... I've brought it up on the show millions of times, but it's like the saddest, 
most savage place in Boston because there are methadone clinics right there. There's like an an eclectic mix of methadone clinics. So all of the, I'm not going to say all of them, but a huge multitude of drug addicts and I want to say primarily opioid addicts, they all fester right there. Like, I mean, you can go out there in the summer day and you'll see like 600 homeless people. You'll see them passing off drugs. The city can't do anything to shut it down because that's where the clinics are. How does that start? How does something like that form? So um, that's a great question. And, uh, and, and really what it talks to is the societal cost of this epidemic. So one of the things that really fucking pisses me off is that the stuff that I used for your shoulder surgery is more expensive than opioids. It shouldn't be that way, though, right? Well, it's okay. It is okay that it is, but um, I can, you know, it's hard to control drug costs. For right now, it is what it is. And so for that reason, Xperel, liposomal bupivacaine, is a lot like the Grateful Dead. The nerve block. The nerve block is a lot like the Grateful Dead and, and licorice. You either, you either love it or you hate it. Mm-hmm. There's zero in between. So what happens is a lot of doctors say it's way too expensive. We're not using this because it's costing us money. And then other doctors are taking the high road and saying, you know, look, we got this clinic. We got this real bad crisis going on. What are we going to do? All hands on deck to make this, this shit better. And so I mean, you'd rather your patients return for surgery than be dead also. Yeah, it's yeah. so many on so many levels. And so, you know, you look at these clinics that are set up. I just So what is methadone? Sorry. So methadone is, a, is another form of an opioid, okay, that does not give the euphoric high, but then satisfies the brain's need for the medication, basically. So so isn't that just like putting a Band-Aid on a, a big wound? Yeah, again, I mean, that's not, it's not my gig, you know, as a pain management specialist, so I, I really wouldn't want to, you know, expertly comment on that. But again, I think that just extending a problem, right? We need to spend money on the front side of this epidemic, okay? And then to be able to reduce the cost on the back side. Like, how much does it cost? Like, you know, I, I get I get calls all the time. Oh, I got a doc. I really want to use this, but the hospital CEO, the, the suits won't let me use it. You know, and I and I say, well, tell the suit to call down to his emergency room right now because he's got ten dudes that are ODing in his in his is hospital and it's about $90,000 per treatment for one of those. Wow. So the vial of Xperel, that stuff we used in your shoulder is 170 bucks. Mm-hmm. Your surgery probably cost the insurance company $15,000. Mm-hmm. $170 is not a lot of money out of a $15,000 operation to make sure that you don't die. I know. And, and I mean, are, are you in this field? Are you one of few who are totally anti-opioid? So I was. Oh, trendsetter. Yeah. So that's why I call myself the original. The OG. The original opioid sparing surgeon. So five years ago, my partner, uh, Dave Rebell, he's one of these smart, yelly guys, played football and baseball. He's a four-year letterman for both, which is pretty cool. He's a really good friend of mine. Alpha male. Yes. He, uh, and he does all the reading. So yeah. you know, get these journals. you got to learn new shit all the time as a doc. He can't just keep terrible. doing the same stuff, right? <laughs> so the homework never ends, right, boys? And uh, so homework never started. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm sure my 16 year olds are going to be listening. Yeah, anyway, so uh, I'll get him some shirts too. I'll get your boys some shirts. Awesome, awesome. Jaden, Caleb, hey, Zach, shout out the wifey. Woo! Oh, hi, honey. You're not going to listen to this because you don't like how I'm talking. <laughs> She's not big on the expletives. But did she like the Tylenol commercial? Oh, yeah. She loved that. Oh, oh for reference, you guys got to see the, the Dr. Sigmund Tylenol commercial. I was like, damn, this guy's I'm good. He's a celebrity doctor, I, man. I got some good shit going on. Cam and Mitch, too. My you're older like, boys, too. Got to give them a little shout uh, out. Do you have any act, Do you have any acting background? 
you know, it's, I get asked that a lot. I do a lot of this stuff now. I get, you know, literally, uh, it's routine for me to travel and do all this. No, it just came naturally. I just sort of love it. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, you got it down. I was, like, if I didn't know you and I saw a commercial like that, I'd be like, yeah, this is like, this guy's made for the commercial, man. Yeah. No, so, well, you know, we're, it's the message. It's the message that's most important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so the question was, you know, are more doctors doing this? So, you know, five years ago when my buddy Dave read this journal article, he said, we got to try this shit. I said, okay, man, let's do it. And so we tried it on our first patients in the hospital. And we were doing these total knee replacements, which really suck. I mean, they Totally hurt. new knee. Totally new knee. Saws, drills, fillet open the knee, blood splying everywhere. You know, it hurts. Mm-hmm. And so these patients were lying in bed for three days. They couldn't move. And then we started using this stuff. And the nurses were like, man, what are you guys doing? Like, this patient's like walking today. She had surgery this morning. She's walking this afternoon. It was, it was an incredible change. So we got sort of, we started working on it. And then... I just ran with it. I'm like, this is really important. This is a game changer as to, to what we can do for our patients. And so I've been on a five-year pilgrimage, you know, preaching to whoever will listen. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're really changing the mindset of doctors across the country. There's a large cadre of these similar doctors, the friends of mine that have picked up practice in doing this and, you know, carrying the torch and helping their patients to, to do it. So it's really, we're really gaining traction on this right now. I'm really excited about it. How do you safely take risks like that, especially when you're working on someone else's body? So can me explain the question. Again. I mean, like for you to, to cover new ground from a, in the medical field, you have to test stuff out, correct? You can't, yeah. It's kind of, must be kind of tough. You're doing this on your patients who are living beings yeah so it was fda approved okay so this wasn't experimental and i and every any time as an innovator i try something new and different i study my ass off mm-hmm. so i'll tell you there was a there's an operation called an arthroscopic laterge by some french dude that learned how to do it and so elaborate what, what is the procedure so basically when we typically operate on somebody's shoulder we we go in arthroscopically we grab some soft tissue and we suture back up together and we fix it but for certain patients that have had multiple dislocations and multiple shoulder surgeries over there in the corner as well. Uh, you got a new client. Yeah. I want a broker, a broker percentage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they get recurrent dislocation, then their bone erodes. And so you have to do a bony operation. The bony operation was typically done as an open surgery. And then a couple of guys got together and said, we can do this arthroscopically. So it's like the freaking Mount Everest of shoulder surgeries arthroscopic. It's fucking hard. It is 40 steps to do. Precision. Precision, knowing the anatomy. So what did I do? So in order to learn that, you asked the question, I, I went to Europe. And I went and trained with a doctor who's a master in England and a master in France. Let's One go, of, Dr. Sigmund. That's my guy. Dude. He's <laughs> yeah, hustling. Let's go. Oh, yeah, of course. Went to Cincinnati to a dear friend of mine, Paul Favorito, who's done more than anybody in America. I went to a, a cadaver lab seven different times to study and do the actual operation on a, an tissue on somebody that, that gave their body up for science. And then uh, I studied and filmed for about 100 hours. Mm-hmm. And I did my first case, and I will never forget this guy. He was, he was just, he was so miserable, really mass health insurance. Nobody would take care of him, multiple dislocations, multiple previous surgeries, couldn't hold a job. You know, literally just was just... He said was he had just a busted knee? Just with shoulder, shoulders. Shoulder, shoulders. Excuse so, me. So I went and do all this shit. I go to France. I go to England. I go here. I go this and that and the other. And I sit down. I go, how, how long was this total process of you learning this? Uh, eight months. Wow. it's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Uh, and uh, so I sit down with the dude. And uh, and I, at one point, you got to say to the first patient that I'm going to do this on you. 
right? Say, hey, man, wish you the best of luck. I'm going to start stabbing most, you up. Most people are looking for the exit. You know, like, yeah. dude, I, you're not touching me for the first time. But I, d- I actually explained to him exactly what I just told you. And I'll never forget. It was one of my greatest moments in professional practice. He stared me right in the eye and said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to learn how to do this operation to make me better. I was like, how cool is that? You're like, I love you, dude. I love you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So we went in, and I did the freaking thing in like 80 minutes, and it couldn't have gone better, and it was just... Perfectly executed. And the guy has been perfect ever since. I've done about 30, 25 at this point now, and they've all Mm -hmm. been great successes. But that's what you got to do, man. You can't... You can't keep doing the same shit because things change. Like technology changes, mm-hmm. right? You guys are the smartphone. You guys all grew up on smartphones. The millennials. The millennials, man. So, uh, you know, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're trying to make a difference every day. We're influencing behavior for doctors, patients, etc. How obsessive are you? Oh, totally. Let's go. That's my guy. Dude, you can't do this shit without being... You know, it's I mean, not fun if you don't obsess over well, shit. Got, there's no room for mistakes, mm-hmm. right? I just mean... So, I'm, I'm talking like... Young Dr. Sigmund, right? Mm-hmm. Were you always wired to just be a psycho? Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got <clears throat> three beautiful boys. <clears throat> the twins are Zachary and Caleb, and each one of their personalities are unique and different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Caleb uh, is the type of kid that literally wakes up, gets in, gets his homework done, gets straight A's, doesn't ever ask to be told, or have to, doesn't have to be told to do anything. An executor. Dude, gets it done. Bam, 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 bam. That's your favorite son. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's Zachary, who I absolutely fucking love and adore. He's like a two-sport athlete, as is Caleb, and he's uh, just a a super athlete. Gets a lot of, you know, gets gets it all done Mm -hmm. in his own way. And then... uh, and then there's young ones, uh, Jaden, who's just the hot shot. 14, freaking got a girlfriend mm-hmm. already. What is that all about? Whoa. The young Jack. <laughs> so, so I mean, I mean you specifically, though. Yeah. Like, were you always just, like, totally on the ball, like, on your shit? Yeah, never had to be told a thing. Just wanted to get done. Like, in 10th grade, I knew that I was going to go straight through and become a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. So, it, yeah, so was it, what was the grind like? Oh, it was, you know, I, I don't know. It wasn't that bad. What I'm what I'm imagining is like you seem like a guy who's wired to be like very up, constantly moving. Fucking what is it? Twelve years of school, man. Oh yeah, it's that ridiculous. is miserable. Ridiculous. Well, college was easy. I fucking love college. I it went to Tufts, Tufts right? right here. It was great. Me and Jack been some parties at Tufts. Yeah, man. It's great crew over there. Do you live off campus? Uh, we, I was the president of the fraternity at AU Public. <laughs> oh, Big surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I, have they shut down yet? They were shutting down yeah, all those frats. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. And, uh, but anyway, so, I mean, I thought college was easy. I got into medical school before I took my first test senior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was just at that point. Tufts Medical? Uh, no, I went to so University of Maryland Medical School. I was okay. from Baltimore originally, so I went back home. Is that, is that in College Park? It's not. It's in downtown Baltimore, actually. Okay, great. Uh, and so... Yeah, go to medical school, and medical school was pretty easy because it was all memorization. That's what I do. I mean, I can, you know, they give you the Los Angeles telephone book on Monday for the test on Friday, and then they give you the New York telephone book the following week mm-hmm. to memorize. And I'm just, I could do that stuff really well. So all my roommates would be super pissed, you know. They'd be studying Saturday night until like, you know, four in the morning, and I would go down and, you know, have a couple cocktails yeah. at the pub. And <laughs> this is easy. Rolling back in, I'd study again on Sunday, and, you know, I did well. And so... 
I was fortunate to do very well in medical school, which allowed you to choose what your specialty was going to be. And mm -hmm. orthopedic surgery has always been one of the more highly sought after specialties. It's lucrative, but it's also, you know, fun and exciting in surgery and all of that. And, and you get um, to work with professional athletes. Yeah. And, and so I, I got this awesome gig. Uh, I get, you know, I did a fellowship after my five year residency. So I get into residency. Great residency right here in Boston at the Tufts program. Great. And spent five awesome years here. And then uh, moved out to California and got this gig as the sports medicine fellow for the Curlin Job Clinic, which at the time was one of the world's most famous sports medicine clinics. I took care of the Los Angeles Lakers, the Dodgers, the Kings, the Mighty Ducks. I was on the field for USC football and the Rose Bowl. Nice. And it was awesome. Really great, great experience. That's Is that as glamorous as you can get as a doctor? Yeah. Well, if you're going to do sports medicine, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, so yeah, it is. And then uh, that golden ticket, my Curlin Job Fellowship golden tickets got me through all the doors of professional life to where I am today. So what's interesting to me is, so... I frequently analyze a lot of successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right. Traditionally, they are not very academic. Like you understand that. Like yeah. Mo yeah. most of them are just hardwired, very ADHD, off the walls. It seems like you are that, but at the same time, like you totally executed in school. That's like kind of a commodity. You know that, right? Yeah. No. But well, look at Zuckerberg. You know, he did went to Harvard. But he's just. A, Super genius. <laughs> yeah, no, no, please. I, Zucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so it, you, it's funny that you say that. I mean, like, I just opened another business at this point now. Yeah, give it the plug. Little, little ortho ad. OrthoLaser, www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Nice. So, you know, what happened? So I, I, I get asked all the time. My wife's like, why do you want to do this? You know, why do you want to have... I'm like, I just fucking love the challenge. I love the excitement. That's my guy. You know, waking up and saying, what are we doing today? And... You know, and not only that, but we're, it's a great thing. We're healing people now. You know, you can actually go to OrthoLaser for chronic conditions, which otherwise would require surgery. We laser you up with sharks with laser beams. Next thing you know, you walk out the door and uh, after a 10-minute treatment, and then you get 10 of those, and you're feeling better. You can mm -hmm. avoid surgery. We're also using Whoa. it. We're also using it after surgery now. Which, I, which I believe I am booking some appointments. You are booking some appointments, <laughs> dude. Yes, I got to. You're in. Get in. It will make a difference. And then we're also using it for acute disease as well. So if you, you know, like you see these NFL players, they get an ankle sprain and they're back playing in a week. You zap them with the laser for front, you know four or five times and they get better. And so it's uh, we're taking it nationwide, dude. We're gonna we're we're gonna franchise the damn thing. It's been Let's so go. been open for like eight months. They're knocking down the doors, and uh, do, do you feel spread thin? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess I'm really, really good at managing a lot of things. Uh, yeah, as I was saying, like this guy—you got to see him when he's at the office. He like has this mouthpiece. He's just totally—he'll come into the operating room for like maybe two minutes, pull up the image, bam, bam, smack. He walks you up to the secretary to like book your next appointment and this whole time he's on this little mouthpiece it's like patient patient zero is i'm like <laughs> that i'm like he's true. running like a firm but, like, but this I guy's would, got it down but i want to be clear there's no such thing as multitasking okay there i don't Elaborate. believe that at all so when i'm seeing you as my patient in the room i am focused on you mm -hmm. that is the one task at hand and i'm going to concentrate the shit out of it to make sure i get it right figure out what's wrong and come up with treatment options that are available when I wake up this morning at four o'clock and I got my Peloton ride in, 
Hashtag spot. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sponsored by Peloton, but I fucking hook love it up, hook Peloton. It up. Hook it up, though. It's my favorite. I love that thing. <laughs> you guys know about it? No, you're going to have to elaborate. Oh, so it's this awesome, it's this exercise bike. It's a stationary bike that has this oh, large, Peloton. Yeah, large computer in front of you. And then you can either go do, do live classes with people all over the world. I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. And then you can do on demand, too. And so it's the funniest thing. My wife's always coming down and checking me out. And there's like these really hot instructors, you know, and like they're cleavage and stuff hanging out. And I'm like, and I'm like, man, you're creeping downstairs no, it, in the basement. No, it's perfect because it doesn't matter how freaking hard you race and how far you can't get to her. It's perfect. Oh wow, this is good psychology. <laughs> yeah, man, you're racing as hard as you can. She's right there in front of you. You got all the people around you, and you, you know, it's a lot of fun. So your I try to do your that. Your wife's like, day. my husband's a creep. No, uh, of course, but she still loves me. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so you're you're on a four a.m. wake up every day. 4.30, but today I was up. I, my my, my uh, nurse practitioner, Kristen, you know Kristen. Uh, oh, she's still working over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah, so I, I had met one of... I no, was, that was No, it was Caitlin. You met Caitlin. It, that was insane. I, I was dazed. Mind you, I said some stupid shit when I was coming out of surgery. I was like, yo, you must snag mad nuts. Oh, yeah, like that. you were funny. <laughs> Dude, you were funny. I was, I was whacked. Yeah. And and I came up, and I remember seeing this lady. It was like the first. She's not really a lady. She must be like 30. She was like the first one to come to my aid, kind of. And then I'd seen her at the White's Christmas party. I was like, yeah, you look mad familiar. And I think she sent you a selfie, right? Yeah, she totally sent a selfie. And you, you were like, it was funny because you said, yeah, my shoulder's making some, some noise. It's clicking. Clicking. I said, well, tell him to turn up the music. He won't hear it. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, what is the click? Do we know? Yeah, that's right. the... Yeah, that's the anchor in this the suture. That will go away. We're gonna laser the fuck out of that. Okay, thing. let's dissolve it. We're gonna dissolve it. Go Shark. go crazy, aggressive sharks, on sharks me. with laser beams. Turn it up the power. I like that. So, so you're on a four a.m. wake up daily. Yeah, and so I like to work out in the morning. As get, do I. Yep, just get it out because mm-hmm. in the day you never know what your day is gonna bring. Uh, and then I'll sit down, wake up, make some breakfast, and I'll crank out some important emails and things that I need to get done. What time is this roughly? Probably at about five at this point now. <laughs> Psycho. Five fifteen, and so you know my avocado toast on top of my little thingamajiggy. And Health. Yeah, try to be healthy as best as you can, and uh, and then you know so so I've got my clinical practice, mm-hmm. and I'll be very clear when I see a patient in a room or when I'm operating on, they are the only thing that I'm thinking about. And this starts at what, like eight? Seven thirty OR time. We typically operate on about eight patients in a day. We finish up usually around three because we're running two operating rooms. Mm-hmm. I don't go to the bank in the middle of my cases. I don't, you know, there's all these rumors and things about doctors and what they do and don't do. But, no, we run two operating rooms. Uh, I'm operating on the patient from beginning to end. We just don't have to you know, wait for the cleanup time in between the rooms. So it's This is on an operating day, and you do that once, t- t- two Twice times a week? week. Yeah. yeah, and then on patients, we see patients at 8 o'clock to about 4.30, Monday through Friday. Uh, and then I'm constantly doing shit like this, trying to get messaging out. I do a lot of lecturing both here in the in the U.S., but also speaking across. fees. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. some are and some mm-hmm. aren't. I mean, I donate a lot of my time for, mm-hmm. for energy and stuff that we do. What um? So what time are you going to bed? Oh, I'm like a nine thirty guy. Nine nine thirty, I'm out. Okay, so you do snag a smooth like six seven oh, hours. Yeah, got to do it. Got to do it. I essential, think, right? Yeah, it's essential. For sharpness. You got to do it uh, for sure. And so then we, we do all the, the gigs, and now I've got the ortho laser business that we're doing too. And I just like to say you stay focused on the individual task at hand, and then you move to the next task. So h- how long have you been operating like a 15, 16-hour day? Uh, forever. You know, you I mean, have it, to, it, right? It, start, it starts in residency. I mean, I, you know, residency sucked. I mean, it's easier now, but mm-hmm. we were there for like 120 hours a week. 
So, wow. I mean, there was no time. The only way you got late is you found a nurse because yeah. there was no way to, you know, get out and date. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't get your oil change. You never went to the dentist. I mean, you basically, you ate, slept, you, you basically ate, slept, you know, operated, live, die, repeat, wake up and do it again and, tomorrow. And do you ever shut it off in your brain? Or is it, are you always going? I'm always going. I feel the same way, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be dead at 40. No, like, no, it's just your pace of play, man. It's okay. Just follow your pace of play. Make sure you get mental time out. Make sure you keep your body physically in shape. And all those things work for you, mm-hmm. you know? How long did it take you to find your groove? Uh, well, I came home from, uh, from work the first week in professional practice. And, and my wife at the time looked at me and said, you know, I, I came home and said to her, you know something? I'm overwhelmed. She's like, I've never heard you say that before. And so, yeah, it takes a while to to build up, right? When you're 32 and you go in to operate on your first patient in professional practice, it's not the same as when you're 54 and you've operated on 40,000 yeah. people, right? So you have to just, you know, your pace of play develops with you. I think the thing that really gives me a sense of peace is that I really try to be an expert. I try to be, I have as much knowledge on the focal things that I do on a daily basis as anybody on the planet. And that gives, and, and not every operation goes perfect, and there mm-hmm. are complications and things that happens. It's the nature of medicine. But, you know, if you're, if you're trying your best and you care, people know that, you're good. Well, that was always an interesting bind to me because humans are innately competitive. You know what I'm saying? That's just human nature. You're in a service industry. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You have to just provide innate value for your customer, for your client. How much of ego is in play as growing into being a mega doctor? You know what I'm saying? You got to have a big, all of my doctor colleagues have egos. You mm-hmm. have to. It's, it's essential. You can't go in and do what you're going to do if you don't, first of all, have to have confidence in who you are. Your ability. Your ability, your confidence. Also, then you have to communicate to a patient. I mean, at the end of the day, I hate to say it out loud, but I'm a salesperson. Mm-hmm. As am I. You know? What's the system we're in, man? That's it. So you, you're going to walk into my room. You found me. There could be seven other doctors that are going to do your surgery. And then for the time that we have, I'm going to explain to you what I think is wrong with you, what I'm going to do to make you better, and give you the confidence that that's something that you want to do or not. And why are you the guy to get it done? Yeah. And so, you know, at this point, I mean, I've reached critical mass in my practice. I got mm-hmm. people that fly in from all over for me to care for them. Guys, killing it. You know, and it's awesome. Tylenol that's, sponsor. It's, it's, it's a great privilege to, <laughs> great privilege to be able to care for these people, and and so you know, I feel very fortunate. I will say that all of that hard work, mm-hmm. you know, throughout tenth grade on up, you know, is what got me to where I am right now. So I could talk to you. How do you, how do you navigate ego, though? Personally, is it something you're quiet about? You kind of like, like inside, no, like everybody, you, everybody that knows me that's listening, you're, they say, know you're cocky. Not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll be mean, like, I, I run around telling everybody hashtag follow the front. Yeah. I mean, it's like that, but that, but that's comedic. I mean like real shit. Like, are, are you ever, do you have moments alone where like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm that guy that's fucking killing the medical field right now. But I also have self, self doubt too. Yeah. You gotta have self doubt. It's human. Yeah. It's just the nature, but that's how you push it forwards. It's like. People said to me, why are you doing this ortho laser business, right? Don't you have enough shit going on in your life? Mm-hmm. But I really look at it right now with the opioid crisis and all the surgery shit. People are looking for an alternative solution. And a lot of my partners looked at me and said, this is a really bad idea. And I said, I love it. You said, That's you. Op- 
opportunity. Mm-hmm. When people around you look around you and say, even, and you know it's a really good idea, and the established the establishment says it's a bad idea, that's jealous. opportunity. Yeah, that's I feel opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I said, screw it. We opened this thing up, and next thing you know, uh, they, they, the laser company, it's been around for a long time, and the laser technology's been around, but they have really had a very hard time breaking into orthopedic surgeons in particular. Some chiropractors were doing it, podiatrists were doing it. Their number one use of it mm-hmm. actually is, is, is veterinarians. Veterinarians do, do, lays all the dogs and cats after surgery. They do great. And so they were having a hard time breaking in, and so uh, they, they sought me out because my opioid sparing. They thought that would be a really good match, and I, they tried it out on me. It was successful, and I'm like, all right, you know, I, I see this. And what I saw was you can't put this in the doctor's office because it's just too much shit going on. You've been in my office. You yeah. were saying that perfect. We got it. We got it organized perfectly the way it is. It's a circus. And then if we start bringing in another 70 patients a day on three lasers, it's, it's going to be a madhouse. You won't be able to execute, yeah. Yeah, you can't. Have, so we have, I got my own space. And we opened up OrthoLaser. I trademarked the name. And then the laser company came to me and said, we fucking love this. This is awesome. And we want to take it national. Let's go. So when when's that starting? We're working on all the paperwork right now. OrthoLaser Atlanta, OrthoLaser Middleton, New York, OrthoLaser. Um, hopefully Chicago, Miami, New York, big markets everywhere. Boston is. I mean, you're out in Chelmsford, Lowell area, but yeah. but we are in the hub of the most advanced medical technology and yeah. Bio, right. this biotech is, is super great, Medi- but this is the place to be for medical, right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think that. Uh, Orthopedics in Massachusetts isn't quite as good as it used to be. We've had some really top iconic professors leave our good. market. More space for you to be the top doc. Yo, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag top doc. And, uh, no, so, yeah, so, so you know, it's been exciting, and that's the next sort of phase. And uh, um, I, I continue to enjoy my clinical practice. I'm never giving that up. And uh, I get to run around talking to people like you and – trying to convince docs and patients that that we're all hands on deck when changing the way we do things so at this point like you you've already and i want to we'll dip back into the the opioid stuff because i got a bunch of questions but you personally you you have enough time okay, yeah, okay. Check it out. nice yeah we got here early yeah, too which good. is good we're, we're good go what what now motivates you because you're you're now a gatekeeper you know what i'm saying there's no real model for you uh, so my personal motivation right now, the thing that is most important to me is changing the culture and way in the ways in which doctors practice medicine mm-hmm. in the surgical field. That's it. That, that everything else. And obviously caring for my patients for successful outcomes in their surgeries, but that's really my main focus. How are, are you a spiritual guy? Sure. How much of, do you think some of your success is predetermined or predestined? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think that um, genetics has to play a role. Huge. Right? I mean, my father was a chemical engineer from MIT. Smart fucking guy. And my mother was an entrepreneurial uh, businesswoman. She was a headhunter. She was making tons of cash. When yeah, so you hit up. the lottery, man. And you're white. We're white. <laughs> well, you know, I mean. It's, it's the truth, man. I mean, like, I, that's what I was telling Jack. I was like, I have no excuse not to be a winner because I'm tall, white, smart, and hardworking. In an alpha male. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going down that path. I'm just like, yeah. I'm just like not going to get caught up in there. But I would say, um, you know, those are the things that, uh, that, that sort of drove me to get to where we're going. 
I mean, though, do you ever realize, like, okay, like, I'm a very successful guy. I was blessed to have some of the ideas that I've had. Has it ever come to you? It's like... I mean, look, I'm a Jewish kid from Baltimore, okay? Mm-hmm. My, my parents paid for my college. They paid for three quarters of my medical school. I graduated with minimal debt, with a super smart father, and a very, you know, outgoing personality of a mother. How the fuck could I not succeed? Exactly. Yeah, I feel the same way, man. So... You know, do you feel obligated? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to do all this stuff to mm-hmm. give back and try and change the way we do things. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I'm a spiritual Jew. I'm not a religious Jew. Mm-hmm. You know, I love my rabbi, and I go there. You know, probably I'm you know high well, high, I am. high, <laughs> high holiday Jew. I go twice a year. You okay, know? but the point is, is that do I believe in God in the spiritual sense? Absolutely. Do I feel that you know I'm on a mission? to sort of change this does it come from god sure why not you know i'm okay with that Mm -hmm. i mean you know but i don't pray that that's the case but i get a sense that there's a higher purpose and i'm destined and put here on the planet to make that happen so take advantage of it yeah so when did that click like you you kind of realize like okay you know what i've been gifted all these abilities to become this guy yeah, I got remarried about five years ago. Okay. And, and my wife is just a freaking rock star. And she has... Shout out to wifey. Shout out wifey. Love you, honey. <laughs> and uh, she really has helped me become grounded, more focused, strong foundation. Has shit started to boom the last five years? Yeah. And same for her. She's a, she's busier than I am. Uh, what does she do? www.layfleur.com. She is... Layfleur. Layfleur. So she's a Francophile. She's a beautiful blonde woman who was a professional ice skater uh, back in the day when she was about your age for the ice capades in, in Europe and Paris. Whoa. And so she opened up a flower shop with her mom and has become one of the leading wed- wedding florists in New England. And then she has her own retail space where she uh, does home floral garden type stuff. The tag team. And she goes to, f- so she's busy as shit. She's running around all over the place. And uh, yeah, and her business has incredibly flourished, you know, mm-hmm. since we've been together. So there's been a lot of focus on that on that process and you know focusing on all five of my boys and making sure that you have five kids well she has two from her first marriage and three you know from my first marriage and so we go 24 21 16 16 14 and uh they're all fucking great kids man well they're past they're past that tough age now right we're so lucky you know you hear all these stories and this that and the other and you know they're just it's always good stories we've got great vibes they all love each other and it's uh it's good you're blessed man yeah super blessed yeah so I want to just dip back a little bit into um, some of the opioid stuff. So I did get a plethora of questions. I just want to make sure I list them off. And I was like, I'll give you guys credit on the question. So I have a friend named Christopher McCormick. He's a good guy. Shout out C-Mac. And he's just, uh, for our age, politically active. Sure. So I'm just going to read it verbatim. Yeah, go. My question for him would be how much accountability for the increase in overdoses should be on the drug companies. Purdue Pharma and their executives have reaped massive benefits because of their ability to push these drugs on the market and portray to people they will help them when in reality they make them so much worse. So dude's smart. He knows exactly the right big pharma company that really helped to start this. There's a lot of pushback here in Massachusetts right now. On I, I read it read it all. With yeah. More Healy's. Yeah. So they're, they're going at This is going to be equivalent to the the tobacco you know issue wow it's that big it's gonna go that big they're gonna pay billions i'm I'm convinced of it and they're and they have to have ownership of it i mean they have so they they knew this whole time like we are we are putting a product in the market that is 
totally, totally so, harmful to so humanity. There's a book. There's a book, and my buddy just sent it to me, and I don't. Oh, uh, I got Let me see if I can find it. So, camera still clicking. Uh, um, is that a problem? Cool. No, no, we're good. We're good. Okay, good. take your time. Oh, we're doing great. Um, How are you doing? Good. Oh yeah, I love this shit. Love the opportunity. Here it is. Yeah. Okay. Whenever you're, we're good. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we're we're, still we're, going? We've been okay. going the whole time. <laughs> okay, good. So, all right. So, Pandora's Lab is the name of the book, and basically, it's all about all the fuck ups that have happened through history that we keep repeating. Mm-hmm. There have been opioid crises that have happened over the last thousand years amongst every major culture. The Chinese, you know, back in whatever. The poppy field. You know, and so you can name them. Yeah. And and it's it's just this repetitive process and the idea that we are going to make these opioids and they were now going to be safe because they're going to be longer lasting. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And now the latest one, I'm not even sure what the company is, but there's a company that just released, released super duper fentanyl, 250 times, you know, potency of standard fentanyl whole idea was that it's supposed to be used in combat. That's legal, right? It's legal. That shit is FDA insane. Was just impro- it was approved for the, by the FDA, in theory, for combat. So you got a dude who's injured. You want to give him pain medication because he's going to be on a flight back to wherever, Germany, and it's going to take a while. Don't you think that shit's going to line up on the street? How how is how is that passed when everybody knows that fentanyl is gonna kill you, man? It is so powerful and so fucked up. It will rattle your whole body. It will fuck your your brain chemistry. What are they doing? Who's who is driving the car? That's what I'm saying. Who's the boss here? That's making. So there's a new FDA guy who's in charge of it, and his message is all about you know stopping the opioid crisis. He's doing a great job. I think his name is Kessler. I can't remember. Anyway, so, <laughs> so he so he has he, the most leverage in these situations. But these drugs are coming through the pipeline for years, you know, and so it winds up, and then they go through an approval process. I don't think it's directly related to him, but there are people, influential people now, even at the highest levels, that are ch- trying to change things. Governor Baker is fantastic, you know, Governor Baker for president, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I was a part of his pain management. Uh, <clears throat> commission where we were establishing a pain management access path. He knows how bad it is in mass right now. Yeah, it's it's terrible. So he really gets it and he's all hands on deck and so there's real this Massachusetts is a really good state to be living in with this stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, federal state actions that are occurring that are gonna help you know, But it took a lot of heartache, man, to get here. It's terrible. It's it, terrible. Is it is it still growing, the crisis? Is it getting worse? <laughs> it's still growing, unfortunately. The opioid deaths are now over car accidents. I mean, it's just it's just it's just devastating. I, I, am I am I totally in the woods by saying it frequents coastal towns in the off season pretty rapidly? Mm-hmm. Like I know it's bad on Martha's Vineyard, really bad down the Cape. I'm sure you've seen Cape Cod heroin, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have all those sort of details, but I mean, there are certain towns that were really. You know, so th- then you got the big pharma, right? And then how about the there's the middle guys that distribute the medication. So big pharma sells it to a large distributor, a wholesaler, a wholesaler who then gets it out to the local places. There's a town in West Virginia that has, I think, about maybe I don't know a thousand people that had the equivalent of of you know eight hundred thousand pills a month rolling through that town. <laughs> Fucking crazy! I mean, who's who's in charge of this shit? You know, the distributors. You can't tell me that the distributor doesn't know as that stuff's moving down into this small little town that that seems like it's an excessive amount of pills for that. You know, where's the responsibility? 
where's the humanity? I understand that we live in a society where people have to make money. People want to make money. People are incentivized to make more money. But at what point do you realize, wow, all of my actions is damaging millions of lives? There's bad doctors, too. I want to be clear about that. There are some bad apples out there. You know, you, unfortunately, we had a doctor arrested for you know, involuntary manslaughter in Massachusetts Jeez. for his prescriptive uh, patterns for a patient that what died. What is he overprescribing? Overprescribing. And, but I don't think there was malintent for him. But the, the point is there are some guys that had real malintent. They were like, oh, we're going to sell these drugs. They're drug dealers. There are doctors that became drug dealers. Yeah, they're legal drug dealers. But I want to be clear. Okay, I, I message this all the time. This thing snuck up on us for the average practitioner. We weren't pushed. We weren't given money. We weren't given kickbacks to use this medication. We were told by all of the people involved that you have to use these medications because we're going to grade you. So at the federal level and at the state level and then at this level, thing called JCO, they would come in and they would monitor your progress with your patients. They'd give you a grade. And if, you're, if your patients weren't happy or satisfied with their pain medication, you could get a reduction in the payment that was coming to your hospital. So it was gr large groups that were focused on page management strategies. Wow. So, so it really snuck up. It wasn't so, so to simplify what Dr. Sigmund's saying is that there's organizations that, and these are the people that are paying you, right? No, no. These are. But, but they're, they're giving, they're, in charge. they're legitimizing your practice. They're in charge of allowing me to practice. Okay, yeah. So his superior in the situation, they're grading the patient on progress. And so kind of what you turn into in that situation is, I just want to make my patients happy as possible for the time being. They, there's a question that says, were you satisfied with your pain management? Were you, you know, did you have <clears throat> zero out of 10 pain? And yes, yeah, so on your end, like you want to keep your practice going. You want yeah. them to not feel pain. And I'm, everybody's, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody's telling us. You got to do this. And so we all did it. Wow. And so guess what happened? Okay. I went away from being a healer of knees and shoulders left and right, and I had to become a pain management specialist. What do I mean by that? So I'm operating on patients, and I'm giving them 30 pills, and they start taking these pills. And then they get to seven days. What happens at seven days? Exponential increased risk of addiction. So they ask so for do a you, refill. Do you, do you feel guilty? I don't feel guilty. I don't. I think that I feel let down by the process, <clears throat> and which is why I, you know, I'm here today, and every opportunity I get, I'm trying to change that process. And so, you know, it, it was bad, and, and we were influenced by this, and we have an obligation to, to change how we do things, and it's, and it's slowly changing. And what's great now, it's one of the more liberating things that's ever happened to me in my clinical practice. I'm not a pain management specialist anymore. I don't have to worry about weaning people off of medication. We were getting calls for refills. We're getting calls, you know, in the middle of the night that my pain is terrible. Why did you refill my medication? Or it's a weekend. I got to meet you at the hospital to give you a new script. All that shit goes away. So who does the crisis, who has the biggest obligation when it comes to the crisis? Is it the pharmaceutical company, the wholesaler, the doctor? Obviously, a lot of it falls on the patient, too. Everybody. It's That's what I'm saying. Just take ownership of your fuck up, man. Like yeah. I can't agree more. I mean, one of the things I did for patients, I did this really cool gig. You guys know who uh, Gabby Reese is? I know. She's like the original Wonder Woman. She um, she's a, pro a professional volleyball player. R e i s s. R e e c e. Gabby Reese. Okay. She's married to Laird Hamilton, who's the world's greatest yes. surfer. So they're like this superpower couple. 
And so Gabby had a knee replacement done out in the ho- at Cedar Sinai Hospital in Beverly Beverly Hills, and, and she had yeah. <laughs> she, she, oh, she's the, she's the original Wonder Woman. She's phenomenal. She's uh, uh, amazing at all things. And so she has a total knee replacement at Cedar Sinai, and she has all these friends and professional athletes that are friends with her that have had opioid problems. So she says, "That's it. I'm doing a total knee replacement, and I don't want any of your drugs." And it sucked. She really hurt, mm-hmm. and she had a hard time getting better. It took her months and months and months of rehab to break through it. And then uh, her agent sort of got wind of what was happening with Exparel, and uh, they approached her, and she said, yeah, I want to do this. And so they teamed me up with her, and we went on this six-month sort of satellite gig where we went and we did live TV. I did the doctor show, which nobody watches except for my wife and my mother. Wow. Uh, but, you know, we did that. We did satellite media transmission stuff. We did radio shit. We did uh, TV in New York. And we spent six months empowering the patient. The entire message was you have a choice. Seek out doctors that are doing this, man. You have the right to call your doctor and say, how are you going to treat my pain? You know. And it, it's public knowledge at this point that opioids don't take oxy because it can. it's highly addictive. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you know somebody that died or is, is, is part of opioid abuse? I know someone addicted. Addicted, yes. Yeah. Everybody does. I mean, that's the point now. It's, you know, I walk in the room and I say, look, I got great news, guys. We're going to operate on you, and I'm going to take you through this. We're going to minimize your exposure to opioids, and, and I do this for every patient, and they all go like this. You know, their shoulders drop down. They say, thank you. He's like, you know, I know a, a colleague. I have a sister. I have a nephew. I have a niece someone that succumbed to the epidemic, whether it was a death or whether or not their you know, substance use disorder for the rest of their lives. Uh, that brings me to a point which I really want to talk about, which is the stigma of, of drug abuse. Okay. Yeah, so as you get into this, I'd ask John. Yeah. He was like, I was like, do you have anything you want me to ask him? He said he wants to know about the carcelization between patient and doctor. I don't know. I don't understand what that means. Nor did I, so I looked it up online. Okay, but what he got for me? <laughs> he, he was saying how the the common relationship between doctor and patient should shift because right now it seems like if someone's addicted to drugs, doctors turn into more of an authoritarian in the situation than someone who's actually trying to help them. So is that relevant to what you're about to bring up? Yeah, it's very relevant. And, and so, you know, I've been involved with a lot of uh, foundations, charitable foundations, Megan House in Lowell, which is a great uh, facility for, for women that are a part of substance use disorder that gives them a place to live to get them back in, in their lives in order. Is it effective? Oh, it is. Yeah, they're doing a great job. But the, the issue is this, and this is what changed for me. It was a, sort of a pivotal moment when I recognized what was happening. And that was, we all used to say, oh, this fucking kid, man. What's wrong with him? Get your shit together. You know, what's wrong? Can't you get this figured out by now? You shouldn't be taking drugs. Get off the drugs. You know, you're a dirtbag. You're from the mm-hmm. wrong side of the street, whatever. It's not that. So then there's a stigma associated with it if you become addicted to medication, and really that's not the case. The addiction chooses you. You don't choose addiction. If you're the 6%, okay, if you're that 6% that takes that medication, you just don't, you'll be addicted for the rest of your life. There is no such thing as complete recovery. I I get what you're saying, but I think that's hard for people to understand because, like, that you initially... Drinking your water, popping the pillin is a choice. Well, it's well. So there's a way, a lot of ways in which that happens. <clears throat> so from a prescriptive, if you go in and you have surgical intervention and we give you these pills and you take them as prescribed and you become addicted, you know, addiction chose you. 
right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're you don't have to trust your doctor though. You don't have to do what your doctor says. If you're if you're out at a party and somebody throws down a bunch of pills on the table, and we, hey, you know, I don't know if that shit still happens, but it's like uh, you've been to something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear yeah. that. I'm right, that's awesome. We're making progress, you know. I can tell you, five years ago, at the end of our high school, we were burying one high school kid a month. A month. A month. From from Opioid heroin overdose 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 and where does it come from? M- it mixing with booze mostly. Whatever. I mean, they started. You know, they they took too much, or then they became highly addicted. They couldn't afford. You know, they ch- they change over to a newer, more powerful medication, and uh, and so it was it was bad. My wife's a florist, and so you know she would be doing the flowers to get these people ready. It was it was bad. You know, we're gotten a lot better, and I think I'm really happy to. I, I watch the two of you and. Hearing your story, that makes me feel really good. Uh, but, you know, the prescriptive medications that were meant for somebody else get shared and somebody else takes them, right? Because they're mm-hmm. 50 bucks off the street. And then you got a kid. It's, 50, it's $50 unit usually for OxyPill. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. but Is it? Good. He doesn't know either. All, these are all good things. This yeah. is really positive. I love it. And so the bottom line is, though, it's, it, gets, it, it, it gets spread out. Right mm-hmm. Now you got a kid who's never prescribed the medication. Who's taking them because somebody said it's fun to take it. It's going to make you feel good. Six percent of those patients are now going to get addicted. I mean, it just it spirals on itself. So the diversion effect of the medication being spread out is a problem. So we're changing prescriptive habits, which is great. So actually, Governor Baker made a rule: you can only pass out thirty pills at once. That's it. And after that, you got to get another prescription. I, I get it, but so mind you, I I've recently totally cut off. I was prescribed Adderall in eleventh grade. I got crazy hooked at a point, like insanely hooked, like to the point where I would binge it. I would take it because I just like getting shit done. And so I would I couldn't stop myself from fucking going. It was terrible, man. I don't understand why it's okay for psychiatrists. They're incentivized. They're paid by consultation, right? Correct. Sure. So they they're incentivized to overprescribe their patients because that's how they get paid. Why is that still okay? Yeah, I ain't going there. If it's just my, it's not my gig. You know, I can't. Cut. But but is, isn't that how the opioid crisis started initially? Well, we weren't incentivized to, you know, to bring the patient back in. It was actually a disincentive. We didn't recognize it. Right? It was making our lives much more difficult mm-hmm. to have to deal with all that. And so, you know, we just knew we were taking care of these patients. A lot of the stuff that we do hurts, and we need to make sure that people, you know, patients are out of pain. This is the tool that we have to get them out of pain. And then, oh, so you're so you can prescribe medicine, but the way a psychiatrist prescribes is different. Correct. Okay, I didn't know that. What, so what's the, the distinction? So the the distinction is is that the the tool of the psychiatrist is the medication. Mm-hmm. The medication that I'm prescribing is treating is post operation. Yeah, it's like okay. it's treating a symptom, where the surgery is almost the medication, right? I Got mean, it. So that's it's a different process. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm pissed. It's okay. <laughs> questions? You got more questions? I got a million. Yeah, yeah let's go, man. So, I was, I was listening to the Ron Burgundy uh, podcast this morning. Oh, does he have one? one? It just—it's uh, like the first one. It was, it was so fucking hysterically. It's like, okay, we uh, we'll take some phone calls now. <laughs> <laughs> He's hilarious. And the producer's man. like, uh, that Ron, that's not how a podcast works. <laughs> that, wait, wait, so is, is your wife's business Lafleur? Lafleur, L-E-S. I was going to say that's the the last name of. The the main character in Dodgeball, Peter Lafleur. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, oh, that's so funny. That means flower in French, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So your generation has your movies. My generation has my movies. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. Um. Okay. So 
Christopher McCormick again says, I would ask also ask a question regarding fentanyl. What the purpose of such a powerful drug serves when there are other powerful drugs already out? Additionally, and I would lastly ask, what are other possible solutions for people who are, who are in a great deal of pain but don't want the painkillers or better off without them, which is something we've already gone over. Yeah. But so fentanyl is really designed as a, a narcotic medication to be used intraoperatively. Mm-hmm. So when you're under anesthesia, we give you stuff to make you go to sleep, and then we also provide you medication to help you know, with your pain so when you awaken, you're not going to get the pain stimulus to your brain. So that's what fentanyl came in. It's so powerful, And right? now what happens, as you know, what's, so you guys, everybody knows they're lacing fentanyl into cocaine too. So cocaine, To make it more addictive. Yeah, so cocaine is not a narcotic, just so everybody knows. Cocaine actually works at a different place in your brain. It's, it goes to um, the dopamine receptors in your brain. It just makes you want more. Yeah. It makes you hungry. You know, you want to do stuff. You want to do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's a different, different process of how it works. Uh, but they lace the fentanyl in to make it more addictive, and then they get the bad fentanyl in, and you die from that. Mm-hmm. So you literally go to a little, hey, we're just going to go watch the Super Bowl, have a little cocaine, what's the big deal? And next thing you know, all six people are lying on the floor. Uh, Biting each other's face off. <laughs> no, they're like comatose, like yeah. dying. You know, literally like going through an overdose. Wolf of Wall Street mode. Yeah, yeah. A classic movie. Yes, I <laughs> <a> movie. Awesome. <laughs> so, but yeah, so how, how do people outside the medical professionals access fentanyl? How does that happen? Yeah, so it's not. It shouldn't. It sh- I guess what's happening is that the drug dealers are confiscating it somehow. I don't know how they find it, what they do, but there's like a huge fentanyl bust that they just did. A, I'm not sure. Massive. I know a guy who was just arrested going for 15 years, man. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't. Maybe they're stealing it from the distributors. I don't know. I, I really have no the, idea. Is it possible there? Are, I mean, I also, I don't want you to slander anybody that, yeah. in your industry, but is it possible there's someone? There are a few bad eggs in the medical field that are dishing out. And they have access and are dishing it out. I, the answer is I don't know any of that to a fact, but is it feasible? certainly feasible. Okay. Sure, sure. I mean, there's there's medical professionals that become addicted to opioids too, right? They're working with them all the time, and then next thing you know, they take them, and then they're stuck, and then they have to go through a whole process to be able to continue practicing and all that. So it can happen to anybody. That's the point. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, how much money you got in the bank. You know, if you're that six percent or more, then you're you're fucked. So just don't. Start the medication. Just don't take it. Has there been a shift in what drugs most popular for opioids, or has it always been oxy? So they've done. So what happened was with with the oxycontin, is that we said they said okay, we keep giving these short acting medications. They only last for two to three hours. Let's come up with a formulation that's going to work for twelve hours. Okay. And so what was going on they think we could help with your pain longer you take less pills it's going to be good the problem was it doesn't give you the same sort of euphoric you know moment it doesn't give you the same exact pain relief and then they said well all right we'll take the long acting one but we'll give you the short one too and a then, blast and then someone figured out that if you crush the oxycontin the longer acting one uh, and you snort it or do whatever melt it down you get an even better high so to what, just more direct hit yeah just it's a more direct hit to to the brain um, and so, you know, what we've done now is we really eliminated all of those long-acting narcotics from the post-operative regimen at all. There's just no more of that. And we give, we give five pills of the Oxy-IR, which is the short-acting one, which means that you take it, it lasts for two to three hours, that's it. Um, and we tell you not to take it because I give you all this other stuff. I give you a Tylenol, 
Hashtag spawn Tylenol. <laughs> so we give you Tylenol. Tylenol PM. Right. Tylenol daytime. <laughs> Tylenol cough drop. Right in <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so then we also give a medication called uh, gabapentin, which has also got some other issues now going on, but it's a nighttime sleep medication. We give it to you for five days. We give you three different medications for five days. That's it. That's all you need. What I mean, though, it in the opioid crisis from your knowledge has there been a shift in what's most popular just like right now culturally xanax is probably the most popular prescription right jack zans it, it was perks turns to zans then lean like that's just what happens with kids yeah i mean i don't i, I don't know to be honest with so oxy's always been the one yeah pretty much well vicodin vicodin's the same thing the difference is is that one's hydrocodone one's oxycodone it's just a chemical you know whether or not there's there's a OH on the end or not. It's just a different same composition, ke- though. Same idea, different chemical structure, but s- hits the same receptors, the mu receptor, which kind of like concerted a Ritalin. Yeah. Same shit. Sure. I I remember hearing about Vicodin. What made it very popular was the show House because he was highly addicted to it. Yeah. So my sister got spinal fusion surgery. Oh yeah. And th- and it was before this whole opioid crisis, and. She's fine. She's about to graduate from Harvard Business School. She's a beast. Yeah. But I remember just there were times where, like, everyone was worried about the drugs she was taking back then even. So so this has been common knowledge for a while, correct? That op- Yeah, man. It's, this, this, this same mistake has been made, like I said, in culture after culture over thousands of years. It's crazy um, and talk, so, and man. Th- so they thought this time, Purdue Pharma said, let's come up with this long-acting medication, and we're going to mitigate the risks and then we're going to sell the shit out of it mm-hmm. and tell everybody it's less expensive and it's not addictive. So I, I listened to the State of the Union address. Yeah. And our president, Donald Trump, said that drug prices are at the lowest they've ever been. So that is that applicable for opioids as well? Yeah, opioids are really inexpensive. Oh, God. That's a huge problem. Why don't they just hike the prices up like crazy? No, you know, so the problem is the, it's the exact opposite. What's happened is that the the opioid alternatives, the ones that we're using, are much more expensive than the other. And so we were getting a lot of pushback. They wouldn't let us use it. Great news. So Medicare, and it's called CMS, which is the governing body of Medicare, has finally come out to say, hey, we're actually going to pay surgery centers for the product, the Xperel, so that you can use it and you're not going to have to take it out of your profits for what you were doing, which is why they, they weren't using it, because I'm going to lose money. Mm-hmm. I'm losing $170 in profit by not using this medication on a patient. I'm at Lowell General Hospital. We had the most awesome, progressive C-suite, uh, Jody White, Amy Hoey. Uh, they basically allowed Dr. Verbill and I to use this medication, which was clearly more expensive because the opioid crisis was so you know crucial where we were. Wow. And they were like, we're going to take a societal stance here our doctors believe in this. This is going to change the way we do things. And they agreed to do it, which was amazing. We were super fortunate, which is why a lot of this grew right from the Lowell area. A lot of the practices that we're doing are now spreading across the country right here from Massachusetts. This is the guy. This is the guy. That's it. Hashtag follow the fro. I like that. Actually, I, I think I just followed you. I'll follow you right now again. Instagram, Scott A. Sigmund, MD. Facebook for the oldies and the biddies. Scott the A. Sigmund, biddies. MD. And then if you're into the business world on LinkedIn, same thing. Yeah, so I'm going to be honest. Jack doesn't know this, but I've been wildly active on marketing the podcast on LinkedIn. Yeah. The engagement is crazy. 
it uh, from a business tip the engagement is nuts man Be- because it's uncharted territory you know what i'm saying oh i'll, I'll blow this shit up for you we're gonna do that I'll, i'm gonna i mean my last post on linkedin was a kid uh he was 18 years old just finished his acl surgery which is a really painful surgery one of the ones where the kids get really addicted to the medication and he's sitting there pain-free and I just asked him a few questions, and he's smiling at me. It's because you doped him up, man. No, man, there was no dope. <laughs> That's the point, man. Stay with, with me. Stay with me. And uh, so I posted that thing on LinkedIn. It was a 30-second video. It has 51,000 views. Let's go. So... Yeah. That's a that's a crazy biochemistry thing, is how much how many dopamine hits you get from likes. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, think about it, though. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I know it's nuts, though. Yeah. But so, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll shout it out for you on LinkedIn for sure. Great. Wh- who's the standard for celebrity doctor? Uh, I think Doctor Oz. Yeah, Oz. You know, it's a, there's different. You know, depending on the specialty. You know, Doctor Oz is a guy. Then, uh, then there's you know some doctors to the stars. You know, from orthopedics. There's a guy Neil Eltraj who was one of my professors out of Curlin Job. Wow. He. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw. He was uh, so uh, Sylvester Stallone. Who was married? So so Neil Elitraj and Sly Stallone are married to sisters. Okay, so, wow. so they know each other. Go back all the way. So Sly Stallone holding up the L.A. Times, and he's got Neil Elitraj shaking uh, Tom Brady's hand because Neil did um, Brady's ACL reconstruction. Oh wow! So yeah, so Neil's kind of well known, but you know, there's there's just you know, dudes that run around, but not everybody does the media stuff. You know, doctors are most of those types of docs are all about building a prestige practice. You know, boutique practice, and then yeah, people but, come to you. But but there needs to be doctors like you. There are, man. There are more and more young guys like you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, I'm not trusting some of my age. To no, no. But you're 32, right? So you're sort of kind of millennial. Maybe you're not whatever mm-hmm. that next generation is. But they've grown up with a smartphone and, and YouTube and all that shit, and they get it. They're like, in order for me to to carve out a space and be unique then I want to attack the social media world. And they do it well. Have you ever thought of investing in a full-time videographer for your practice? If, if you pass licensing and just pushing out a ton of content on YouTube? Yeah, so there are some kids doing that now. And, uh, you know, I feel like I've got enough you never enough content. It's I, free. I know. I get it. and and But, I you know, it's hard enough for me. There's only so much time. Uh, you got magic. I'm good. On. I'm actually, I've, I've hit critical mass. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've got everything I need in clinical practice right now. But for a young guy, like there's this guy Gruber down in, uh, I think he's down in Texas. He's really cool. He does, he's got a professional videographer, runs a really cool YouTube channel. Some of the guys choose to really show everything about their, their personal and professional lives, which is cool. Uh, it's tough to do some shit like that. Yeah, I got my, my buddy, uh, Karamasi, who's out in, in California. He's like the original surfer dude, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's married to this really hot doc. Her, uh, and uh, the two of them are like, you know, superstar Instagrammers. And they show their kids. Document and all this everything. Stuff. They document everything, you know. And so people love. They're, they're big time followers on that, too. I think that'd be tough for you, though, right? I, I pop my wife up on occasion, you know, I'll, um, you know, because just to give her a little shout out, too, for all she's doing. Uh, well, I, also, I just mean because you're always on go. I'm sure yeah. you respect your private time. Do you? Yeah, totally. And I'm more about, you know, my my social media presence is about really getting important messaging out. But I also do it in a fun way. So we'll do some, you know, we'll do some fun shit. You know, mm-hmm. like I'll talk about, you know, on my storyline in particular, we always pop up some stuff that Facebook, uh, no Instagram storyline for sure. 
that's where we have a much younger crowd. I've got about 25,000 following me yeah. there. Y- elaborate your storyline, like your story? The story, yeah. Little story <laughs> thing up top. You, you know, got to get thing. you with it, man. Yeah, yeah I know. I'm, <laughs> man, I'm fucking old. Relax. I'm doing pretty good well, for Well, there's story and there's timeline. Timelines right. via Facebook. Right, okay. God, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, my story is fun because that's when we do intraoperative stuff mm-hmm. and uh, always try You guys to drinking on the job, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, sure, right. <laughs> You know, throw my dog in there on occasion, too. Have you ever, to be honest, just fucked up a surgery bad? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's put it this way. There's never a single uh, doctor that's been in practice that has a case or two that wishes went better. Have I ever fucked somebody up before? No. Clearly. Come on, don't lie to us. Is there a time where you're like, slipped? Oh, fuck. (laughs) No, 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 no. But, but, you know, it's like anything else. There's nothing that's 100%. I tell my patients that all the time. I say, look, I am really good at this. I've studied my ass off. I know what I'm doing. But there's a percentage of infection that occurs at 0.1% for this operation. You talk about fate. I mean, it certainly, it could just happen to be you. And I can't predict that. What I can tell you but is. As a salesman, you don't say that. If that know. shit happens, I'm going to take care of you. You yeah. know, we, you, we're committed to you in the entire process of your healing, regardless of what happens. And the worst thing you can do as a doctor is to have a complication or something not go exactly the way you want to and then ignore the problem. Patients mm-hmm. fucking hate that. You got to own it. So one of my partners, um, I forget his, I forget the patient's name, but you know, it's the Jacobazzi principle. It's like, dude, it's like if you treat them with the most possible love, because they're, you're never going to get sued for a bad result. You're going to get sued because you didn't negligence. Care. Now, because most of what we do is within the standard of care, and if somebody has a little thing that happens to them, that falls within the standard of care, and so therefore. It's not an issue, but if patients are upset with you, if they feel like you're not listening to them, uh, you're not, you ignore their problem, they get pissed off at you. So yes, every doctor that's ever operated has a case or two which they wish they would have gone differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I've never fucked up anyone. Yeah, okay. Salesman. <laughs> so, so what a, elaborate, does a surgeon also have a Hippocratic Oath? Oh yeah, sure. So just for the uneducated listener, what is your Hippocratic Oath? The one, the portion of the oath that I can remember best mm-hmm. is firstly do no harm. And so that's what it comes down to. You know, make the diagnosis, arrange for a treatment program, and firstly do no harm to the patient. But, but uh, from, a, from a surgeon's level, let's say I come to you, I'm like, hey, doctor, I'm going to keep it a block with you, man. I'm popping dumb amounts of pills. Like from a doctor, me to you, I'm like, yeah. I'm like totally addicted to Percocet and Vicodin, right? Yeah. You can't tell anyone, right? No, of course not. But that must be hard. Like, you come home, and I'm like, yo, this, I had a kid just come in who is a fucking head case, man. No, it's, you know, so yeah. I mean, there's people all the time that, that come through. The, the hardest part was when we were dealing with this, this opioid crisis and we were managing all these pain issues, we just had to take your face on for what you said. Yeah, I'm not taking any pain medication. I've got no family history. Let's do this. Let's rock it out, you know. Or I came in, I've got the worst shoulder pain, and it's like a, it's like a 42-year-old soccer mom who looks all pretty and well-dressed. She's, she's got doping. the right bag, and she's doping. And not only is she doping, but she's muling. So she's wow. coming in and trying to get – out to the other soccer moms. Yeah, well, or whoever she can get the money yeah. from or whatever system she's a part of. And we had no idea that these people were there. You all you can do tell. is just a trust, right? So Governor Baker, in his wisdom, along with his you know appropriate people, came up with this thing. We have a narcotics database now. So as a doctor, if I'm going to write a prescription for you and I don't log on to the narcotics database – 
and so, find out exactly what you've been prescribed over the last two years by what physician. Does it include criminal history as well? No, it does not. It's just the prescriptions should, though, that have it? been written. It's just, well, you know, that's, I, that's, that's for the lawyers. Mm -hmm. But the point is I can go online and I can actually see what narcotic prescriptions you've been written for for the past 12 months. Okay, and if you we could see, you know, either you've been lying to me because you've been getting them from four different doctors, right? Right, or or you haven't been taking anything. I can lose my license if I don't sign on before writing you a prescription. So that has given us incredible freedom and and liberation in being able to monitor our patients because we know who's on the medication now, and it's I'll still take care of you if you're on the medication, but we have to have a plan. You know, I need to talk to your pain management specialist. I need to talk to your primary care doctor. Who's going to manage your pain after your surgery? What can we do to help wean you off? But it's no longer a surprise. It's a plan. So we know exactly how we're going to treat each patient, even the patient that has a history of substance use disorder. Do people get pissed off when you don't, if you're like, hey, man, i got to be honest with you. I don't think I can give this to you. Uh, it happens on occasion, you know, and they'll seek potentially going elsewhere. And I say, that's fine. You, you know, you can seek a second opinion. This is our clinical practice. This is what I strongly believe in. And, yeah, that's what I'm doing. So where where will the opioid crisis be? And if I've been saying, is it opioid or opiate? Opioid or opiate. Okay. Both are alternatives. Okay. Where will it be, given some of the the new constraints in the marketplace, some of these new lawsuits, some of the new practices popping up, where will it be in five years? Will it be larger or will it be die down? Oh, I'm doing everything in my power to make sure it's coming down. Yeah, I mean, especially from from the elective surgical perspective. That's really where I have my most influence. We're also trying to influence primary care doctors because they were influenced the same way. They were like, you know, your patients are in pain and you got to do something for them. And so patients had these chronic conditions like knee arthritis or bad back. And they keep coming in saying, my pain, my pain. And what do they do? They'd write them a prescription for the opioids. And then they became addicted. And so, you, you, you know, you think these 60-year-old grandmother that undergoes a lumbar spine fusion and then be addicted to opioids afterwards. Or, or have wow. a patient with a chronic spinal condition that never gets surgery that's given these medications. So we have to re-educate our primary care doctors and provide them resources for how they can help manage their patients to not start opioids in a chronic pain condition. So there's all kinds of shit. We got la ortho laser now. We we're talking about that. We got some new stuff that we're I know using. it's just interesting. Something that's growing so fast. How do you dampen it down? You know, because I mean, you can only do so much. The numbers you, are huge. It's insane, huge. Huge man. Numbers. And it's. Have you seen Cape Cod Heroin? No. I mean, I don't. I would watch it. It is like the most. It's such a gritty documentary. There's like one or two videographers and they just like go into the cut with these people taking heroin and they're all saying like yeah i was in a bad car accident and got hooked to oxy man started doing heroin four out of five new heroin users started on prescriptive medications from but, their doctors like why is it possible would it be beneficial if they cut the production of opioids completely it's already happening so the good news is um so i'll tell you another it's all about stories so you know so at Mass General Hospital and the Brigham Women's Hospital, they don't have these opioid sparing alternatives on the formulary because it's considered too expensive. And so there was a national shortage for the IV medications that are the pain medications that are used in the operating room. Okay. And so like some distributor went down or a factory blew up or it's not, I don't believe in serendipity. I think they turned off the, mm -hmm. the, the, the equipment. And uh, so all of a sudden there was this national shortage. So the chief of the pharmacy at the Brigham and Women's Hospital 
is working under the hood, like in Breaking Bad, you know, like mixing stuff together. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. So he could literally, you know, give it to the patients in the hospital. Old school. He's like manufacturing, making the shit right there in the hospital. And patients had taken it? And Well, no, he was. it, it was medical indication. It's IV. It's not by mouth. These are the IVs that we use during, yeah, yeah, yeah. during, during the surgery. It's required. Intravenous. You, intravenous. Yeah, you can't do surgery unless you got these things mm-hmm. to help people through. So they were going to have to cancel surgeries and all this other stuff. So he's mixing under the hood and doing his whole thing. And then he picks up the phone and calls the, the head person that's in charge of Xperol, which we're, we're, we've been using at Lowell General for over five years, and says, you guys are on formulary tomorrow. Get down here. You need to teach us how to do this. And so because wow. of that shortage... Mm-hmm. There was a positive influence on some of the opioid alternatives that are available. What I'm saying, so from a, a capitalistic perspective, can they just shut down these big pharmaceutical companies entirely? It's not my gig, dude. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably not going to happen. But I think that there'll be lose too many jobs, significant regulation, and I think what happens is that you know, as this wave of issue comes through, like the big tobacco companies, and they recognize the complications to the cost to society and lives, as well as all the medical expense, et cetera, you guys are going to have to pony up, man. You're going to have to pay for some of this. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what's going to happen. When that happens, then we're hopefully through the backside of the epidemic. Uh, we'll continue figuring it out. And hopefully, you know, 700 years from now, the next major culture isn't going to do opioids all over again. I know, but it's crazy. It's like this thing started and it's going to be a very long time until it's over. Total. Totally. I mean. So you just got to leave a legacy, right, man? Well, that's what I'm trying, man. That's uh, You're getting all there. about. Yeah, you're, I'm trying. You're a good guy, Thanks, man. Thanks, kid. Appreciate <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, so additionally, we're going to wrap it up in a little bit, but. Are you, are you feeling good about anything? We talked about all the dark stuff. Any, anything positive on the way for Big Doctor S? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, we talked about the ortho laser. I mean, I think. I'm, I mean, I, just uh, business aside, man. Yeah. Personally, um, the guys on go. It's my fucking guy. No, I got a really cool gig coming up. I'm actually really excited about it. Actually, um, where uh, I've been in, uh, invited to be a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. Nice. So you really just live and breathe this medical shit. You have to, right? I do. That's what I do. I mean, I you know. There's no half-assed, really good doctors I'm a, I'm out a, there. I'm a bad golfer, and I go out and play bad golf with my buddies, and I enjoy that. But they're your business partners usually. You, no. you want to get invested with an ortho laser. No. <laughs> <laughs> Those are already coming, man. Let's go. <laughs> We're going. You guys are going to be ortho laser everywhere. Zap uh, me, man. <laughs> it doesn't hurt, by the way. There's no heat energy. It's cold laser. So you don't feel it. You don't see it. It doesn't burn you. Uh, it has this two sort of wavelengths of light. You should really listen to this. Yeah. It was an ortho laser, though, man. Was it a cool robot that goes? No, it's old school. You got to go. You got to go the new class for a cold therapy laser. Wait, where's your office? Chelmsford. Chelmsford, yeah, yeah. So why are you why are you tucked over there instead of in the city? Uh, because I'm referring patients to my practice. It sort of makes sense for there to be a geography that's close by. But we're going to. Uh, uh, there's some talk about an orthopedic surgeon north of Boston that's very interested. We're just in the process. I, you know, we want to have 130 of these things in about three to five years. I, I don't mean ortholesia specifically. Oh. I mean, why is your operation not in Boston? Uh, you know, I don't need to be in Boston. You know, I mean, I, I mean, you've got it like that. But what I'm saying is, is Boston is the hub, right? Well, you make choices in life. So, so early on, I recognized that I really like operating. I want to do it. Right. Fun for you. It's fun. So if I go to Boston and I'm working in an academic setting, I got to give some of that shit up. I mean, I don't mind teaching and I do a lot of teaching, but then you got to have other people who are just training, operating with you and you allow them to operate on your patients. Yeah, I and get then it. you got the responsibility of that. 
So, I mean, I have surgical observations. We have doctors from all over the world come to my operating room to watch what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. I have, I have a choice. I live outside of Boston. I work in an awesome community. Lowell is one of the best cities in the state. They're great people. People have been there forever. The Lowellians are the best on the planet. Um, You're doing some stuff at UMass Lowell. I do. I'm the team doc at UMass Lowell, so I do Division One sports. And then I travel the world and the country, you know, teaching stuff and have doctors come and follow. I, I, I have happy. a great practice, man. I'm super happy. I don't need that prestige of the academic center and all that. Yeah, so you're at the point where there's no added opportunity for you being in the city. None. It's actually a distraction. It would be, oh, le- would be less sure. of an opportunity. And parking would be tough. You know, it's like you, you talk about the team docs. You know, I had the credentials. I had the street cred to go and become the team doctor for the Patriots if I wanted to. Uh, you you, know, you were the Celtics at one point, right? Or uh, Celtics surgeon, some sort of affiliation. No, I did a t- dumbass little TV. Oh, that was just that? Yeah, it was just that. Uh, uh, did you get plastic surgery or something? <laughs> you no, look no, man, no, man. And the hair's real. <laughs> well, you just, you looked like a different human six years ago. Yeah, well, like, probably for my wife. She got me healthy. Let's uh, go. Yeah. Let's okay. go, wifey. Yeah, 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 wifey. It's all that Tylenol you've been taking. That's it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> wake up. Ah! <laughs> No more than two grams in a day. Uh, you're right. Uh, anyway. Um, also, one, one note, that anesthesia was hitting during my surgery. I remember, like, you know, have you taken anesthesia recently? Nah, it's probably been about 25 years. Yeah, I was just like, it was my first time ever getting it. And I remember I just feeling it. I was like, oh, fuck. Dude, you were, you were a hoot, man. You were a hoot, you were a hoot going in because they also gave him a little bit of stuff to sedate him before he goes in. He like, was, yeah, this kid's off the walls. We got to uh, fuck him he's, up. He's, dude, he's like hitting on every one of my nurses and techs on the way in. He had everybody's uh, number shorty. by the time he was done. Uh, well, no, but I remember, what I, I don't know, is this frequent that you go under anesthesia and you're like, you're becoming sedated? And then you wake up a little bit later because that's what happened to me. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then I think you guys might have given me an additional hit. Yeah, so that sometimes happens. You got you to gotta titrate it to the right dose because the dose mm. is different for every patient. So it was, it was a cool experience, though, for sure. Well, let's hope that's never a street yeah, drug. You, and, let's, you're, and you're done. We don't need to reoperate on you. Not three times like that dude over there. We'll, fi- we'll uh, figure it out. Yeah, we'll get you, man. <laughs> so um, We can do his live surgery, though, next time. How's that? Oh, we'll get it on the GDP page. Yeah, that'd be amazing yeah. content. <laughs> no, do a podcast with you post and bef- before and after. During. During. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so besides joining the, the Legion of Surgeons, anything yeah. else fun coming up? That's pretty much it, man. I, you know, it's gonna do, we do vacation time with the kids. and um, how, how much is that? Not enough. You know, we rent a house down at the Cape, down in Orleans. My sister has a house there, and we get the whole family together every year, the same year for July 4th. That must be awesome. tough, man, for your work-life balance. must be insane. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. I do a lot of travel for work, and so, but, you know, it it, it is what it is, and mm-hmm. we, you know, the older boys are, are uh, big hockey, so we spend a lot of time traveling for them. You know, Cam's at Hobart, finishing up, and we're going to be graduating in May. Hobart's D1. Uh, D3, they're one of the top uh, D3, yeah. D3 teams every year. And Mitchell's finishing up juniors uh, for the Manchester Junior Monarchs in the NCDC League. Uh, both of those boys are St. John's Preps uh, uh, guys, so i got to shout that out for the uh, for the local teams. and The Catholic Conference. And Mitchell is uh, is uh, entertaining offers for college, so yeah, we're, nice. uh, they're doing great. We plan on watching Sports them. offers? Uh, for hockey, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, to play hockey. Big hockey family. Yeah, big hockey family. Plus, I take care of UMass Lowell, and uh, so we have you know D1 hockey there all the time. Be there next Friday. PC beat UMass Lowell, man. 
Yeah, PC's been doing okay. UMass Lowell's been doing okay too. Yeah, uh, they're a top school at this point, right? Oh yeah, UMass Lowell has been running in the in the top ten, and they've been in the Frozen Four twice. You know, Providence just won, I think, two years ago. Yeah, there was a riot in the yeah. streets. Yeah, that pretty was cool. cool. It was really cool. So listen, this is first off. Did, is there any other opiate questions you think would be of value that I could ask for my, for the demographic who will listen to this show? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say the message one more time. Just just please just please don't die. Your your parents are, or maybe just don't take the pills because you know that's gonna pills, fuck you. And up. then you don't die, and then your parents still love you, and everybody's happy. So, and if you're in pain, why don't you just like smoke a lot of Kush, man? I don't smoke, but it helps. Whatever works, as long as it's legal and you're doing shit in moderation. What if posters right you start doing? handing out bongs? <laughs> Tylenol hits. Tylenol hits. Can you put a Tylenol sticker on the bong? That'd be fine. Could you hit up Tylenol and just tell them I'll put it right here? No, not so much. <laughs> Please don't hate me, Tylenol people. <laughs> so, listen, this is how we start and end the shows. You say, hi, your name, and this is my golden hour. You're not going to say your name. You're going to say whatever your name is. Yeah. Directly after no break, hi, your name and that was my golden hour. And listen, you got one chance to do this right. You got to do it right once. Give it to me one more time. This I, what? is and that was. This is and that was. And I put your sauce on it. You know what I'm saying? That's how they're going to remember you over here, man. <laughs> what there it is. <laughs> Hell yeah. So whenever you're ready, Jack, can you brace yourself? Oh, Jack, you didn't even come and frame it. Could you at least come say hi? Oh, well, you're going to cross anyway. Might as well say hi. Um, cause I because because the audio sync, I want to make sure we get this so, on the same time. So is it this is this is this is Doctor Scott Sigmund, and this is my golden hour. This is Doctor Scott Sigmund. This was my golden hour. That was. That was. This and that. Mm-hmm. Hey, how would we do? Did we do you do a good job. Awesome, man. It was great. Fantastic. Hopefully. Uh... Wait, you are you are you click? You didn't click it yet, right? Don't scare me like that. All right, yeah, we'll do it whenever you're ready. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund. Yep, sure. There we go. Can't get my swag. This is Dr. Oh, Scott big Sigmund. Big beefy, look at him. Building oh. the guns. <laughs> this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, and this is my golden hour. This is Dr. Sigmund, and that was my golden hour. And he's the best surgeon orthopedic in all of New England, if not the country. Hashtag follow the fro. All right.